Welcome to On Script's Biblical World, a podcast exploring the history, archaeology, geography, and cultures of the Bible. Visit us at onscriptstudy biblicalworld. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Biblical World Podcast. This is Matt Lynch coming to you from Regent College in Vancouver. I hope you're all doing well. Uh, I wanted to just say a welcome again to our new Biblical World co-host, Amy Bailo, who you'll hear in this episode. So hope you enjoy. And thanks so much to all of you who give regularly. You can go to onscript.study forward slash donate if you'd like to become a supporter, or if you could give us a review wherever you listen. That would be immensely helpful as a way of showing your appreciation. Um, and otherwise, thanks for uh, listening to this podcast. Welcome back, Biblical World listeners. Uh, we have a very exciting episode today. It's a little bit different than what we've been doing in the past with our different series on Egypt and the Bible and Judges. Uh, we're going to do something a bit more thematic today. We've called today's episode Biblical Geography, A Missing Ingredient. And I'm excited because I'm joined by my uh, longtime co-host, Kyle Keimer. Hi, Kyle. How's it going? I'm pretty good. But I'm also joined by our brand new co-host who we're excited to introduce to you guys. She was actually on a podcast that I recorded with Matt a few weeks ago, Amy Balo, And she's going to uh, join us to talk about the um, this very interesting topic that we all really enjoy. Amy, why don't you introduce yourself to our uh, listeners? I know you did a bit in the last one, but uh, give them give them an overview of, of your background and who you are. Great. So it's great to be here, Chris. Thanks for bringing me on. Um, so I am currently the lead lecturer of the humanities at Regis University in Denver. Um, I have a long standing uh, history in biblical studies. I did it as my undergraduate at Patton University in Oakland, California. Went on to do a master's in ancient um, in Bible and ancient Semitic languages at Jewish Theological Seminary, and then did a PhD in the study of religion uh, with a concentration in Bible at the University of Denver and Iliff School of Theology. Um, that was a number of years ago now, and so I've just been teaching and writing and doing all sorts of interesting things. So Great. And we heard last time a, a fantastic and really interesting look at your at your PhD, which is a book now, uh, Moses Among the Idols, I think is the name. Yes. I don't remember if it's among or uh, in the idols, but it's a it's a it's a really interesting thesis. So if you'd missed that episode, go back and, and check it out. Today, as I said, we're gonna look at Biblical geography, a missing ingredient. Um, and for those of you who have been listening to the podcast, geography is is always something we're kind of coming back to, uh, whether it's in Egypt or in the land of Israel or everywhere in between. It's something that we're we're very interested in. As a discipline, we can call it the historical geography of the Bible. It's something that each of us have a vested interest in. I spent a lot of my um, academic career coming up in historical geography at Jerusalem University College, as well as at Bar-Ilan University. I did my PhD on what most people consider to be the most boring chapters of the Hebrew Bible. That would be Joshua chapter 15. Uh, I remain very interested and invested in these in this you know dry minutia um, because they're connected with the land. And I know Kyle as well has spent a lot of time 
interested in historical geography. What got you first interested in historical geography, Kyle? You know, it was when I was doing my master's at Wheaton College, one of my professors, um, John Monson, who grew up in the Middle East and lived over there. And he did a class in historical geography. And it really just, it opened up my eyes to understanding the text and kind of pulling everything together. And then I ended up working for a company that his dad started called Biblical Backgrounds, where delved into the maps and everything and just saw the way in which the land is the glue that kind of holds everything together. And so if you don't have this background of the, the physical setting, you're really kind of floating in midair without without the foundations necessary to really pull things together in a meaningful way. At least that's the way I see it. And so that's how I kind of got into it and have taken every opportunity I've I've had since that time to get to Israel to explore whenever I'm there, just rent a car, drive around, see something new, see the landscape, get a feel for it, and see how it kind of illuminates everything we see in the text, in the ancient Near Eastern texts, mm -hmm. and even then how we can see the archaeology in a more regional perspective. Yeah, that's right. I, I agree. I think that so much of what we look at when we're, we're talking about the historical geography of the Bible illuminates the text so much in, in ways that we would have never thought of. It, you know, it, and many of us have led, have led tours and gone on a lot of these things, and, you know, the common refrain is, I saw the Bible in black and white before, and now it's in uh, living color. And that kind of sounds cliche, but it but it really is true. And I I think to me it, it's not just um, it's not just about that kind of like realization. It's the enduring interest and the depth that you can continue to come back to. And I'm not just talking about the depth of the soil, but the depth of being able to in, like invest yourself in this world. And there's really no end to it because it's just keeps going on and there's new discoveries in archeology. span There's new things that people haven't thought about in a long time that you can add to our, our knowledge of the biblical world. Amy, when did you first become interested in um, biblical geography? Um, you know, I think for me, uh, I didn't, I wasn't able to go to Israel until I was kind of into my PhD work. And so for me, it had always been kind of a blank area, right? Um, I didn't really, I mean, I'd seen the maps and all that kind of stuff in undergrad, um, but I never really, you know, got to like go see it and feel it and understand what people were doing when they were moving about it. Um, and so finally getting to do that and then doing archaeology kind of at the same time, um, was exactly what you said, Chris. It was just like everything kind of like the color turned on, right? Um, it's kind of like that that transition in like the 1939 Wizard of Oz movie when she like is, you know, it's black and white and then she enters Oz and it's like everything's vivid. Like that's really what it felt like because, um, you know, that and then like touching the earth, right? Actually excavating, um, holding things that hadn't been touched in thousands of years, um, just having that connection. And so that really sort of turned on my interest in geography. And I seriously can't do a project without it because it's always there in the biblical text because it's part of the lived experience of the authors, right? And it's part of the experience that's um, being woven into the text. So when you read these stories about people on the move, you can't really understand what that means if you don't understand the point A and point B, right? Um, and what's in between. Right. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And I, I'm going to butcher this quote, um, but Jerome says something along the lines of just as you can gain knowledge and, you know, and, and interest in visiting Athens to understand Greek mythology or to be on the fields of Troy and think about the, the Trojan War, 
so does coming to the Holy Land to experience what that what that world was like. And and I, I absolutely love the point you make. It's not just about the authorial intent of what they're saying when a text is is coming across, whether it's narrative or prophecy or poetry. It's about the the shared environment of the author and the audience and taking it to a third step, which is something I want to I'd like to bring out more today. It's also the shared interest in that same landscape throughout the reception history of that text and the way texts can move and change over time, but the land stays the same. And I think that's to me why when we visit some of these landscapes that we'll talk about later, when we when we're there, we're not just like passive observers, of, you know, thinking about the text as only scholars or historians or archaeologists. If you are invested in the story in a in a, a you might say a, a sanctified way or a way that is you're trying to think of it from the way it was written, you are part of the story. Like you're part of like like I mean Eusebius the Onomasticon. Why is he going and finding these sites? Because he sees himself as part of that ongoing story, and I think that too is a another element. Well, why don't we um, why don't we focus on some examples of this? And Amy, I'm going to let you go first. If you don't, if you don't mind, and in fact, uh, you can uh, talk about your your site that you're going to give us as as an example. But maybe you also want to kind of share with our audience why this is kind of fresh on both of our minds, because we've spent a lot of time on the Lexham Geographic Commentary series over the last few years. So, I'll hand you the floor. All right. So I'll start off with uh, your last piece then um, before I get into the the test case I want to talk about, which is the city of Shechem or what used to be the city of Shechem, I guess. Um, so Chris and I met actually because I have been the academic editor for the Lexham Geographic Commentary on the Historical Books, which is going to be a collection of, I think, about 70 articles that looks at geographical questions uh, related to the historical books. And um, we're kind of nearing the end of getting all the changes back from authors. And so it was kind of an appropriate time to talk about it. And so um, that's where, you know, we have a bit of, of history with this. Um, and it really brought me back to geography as like a source of knowledge about the Bible, um, because in my other work, I was doing stuff that didn't really have much to do with geography. Um, I was doing more like environmental kind of stuff at the time that I came onto that. And so it was sort of tangential. Um, and then I just thought, you know, it's a good time to kind of get back into it. And, um, but it's really been fascinating to see how all of these different authors come at the same data and the same material with very different questions. And I didn't realize how much energy there was around this geography question. And so it's been really nice to kind of see that unfolding and see that that interest is evolving in new ways as we have new discoveries and new ways of reading that people are bringing to the text. Just as a comment to that, um, what I find so refreshing about something like Lexham Geographic Commentary Series is really it's getting biblical studies back to its its roots. I mean, if you if you think about the rediscovery of the lands of the Bible, and here I'm talking about Mesopotamia, Egypt, and uh, then Palestine, it was primarily driven through biblical geography, through people like Edward Robinson and Eli Smith, and of course later on the Survey of Western Palestine. And that was the focus for what what drove such interest into these into these lands and landscapes. And for whatever reason, in the last, I'd say 40, 50 years, maybe less than that, 
it's really waned and and i think that's why a great project like uh, lexum is doing and i think there are others too uh we're trying to do this a bit with with gesher media and of course this podcast trying to kickstart that yeah i would just concur with with all of that just to add my two cents that you know it, it is unfortunate and this is a passion that that i, I certainly know chris and i share of of bringing historical geography back to the fore because it was it was one of these core fields if you will of biblical studies laid the foundations for archaeology and it's it's kind of fallen fallen on this on the wayside as of recent but there's so many new new things we can do it's not just about identifying this site with some biblical site there's there's so many other questions that we're that we're able to ask at this point because of the amount of archaeology we have because of the increased amount of ancient near eastern sources we have and so it's a it's a very it's rife for for new approaches and new understanding yeah, and there's a lot of questions coming out about and with environmentalism as well like there's a lot of questions about changes that the land has been through um, how the land might be different back then than it is now um, especially when you get into like the the earlier periods like late bronze age and stuff like that like there have been changes and so um, even that's helpful to know and that's all part of geography and so it's not just you know, understanding the biblical text as it was, but it's understanding how our understanding of the text can change over time. Um, because if you go there now, obviously it's a lot different than it was. The land is the same, but there's more layers of civilization um, by far. And just the kind of mental ability to almost like strip it down and, and see the actual landscape, um, I think is really important. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And I'll, I'll, I'll try to segue this into Shechem. When I visit the area of Shechem, and when, especially in the modern situation today, where you go from Israel proper, Jerusalem vicinity, with you know forested areas um, by the Jewish National Foresting Agency, I think I think it is, where they planted all these wonderful tall trees that were not meant to be there, and as soon as you have any snow, they immediately fall, and as soon as you have any uh, heat indexed above what they're supposed to be at. You have all these fires. And then you go into uh, into the West Bank or into, again, West Bank, Judea, Samaria, whatever you want to call it. It's sort of like what it may have been like in ancient times, except there's far less trees. And so you have these two very stark realities uh, that are not quite like what things were in the biblical times. And that's actually why uh, when you get into like the the most lush areas of the West Bank, and here I'm thinking especially in the vicinity of Hebron and in the vicinity of Shechem, the two great what you know Monson called the the uncrowned king and queen of the south and the north, respectively, where you have water and you still have some of the uh, agricultural elements and some of the vegetation as it would have been. It, that's where I get the most excited because you're like, okay, finally we're we're in kind of the, the the land the way it the way it was, and but it's hard to do. It's hard to uh, visualize, and that's actually why a lot of the 19th century paintings and 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 uh, photo, uh, photography of the Matson collection and so on so helpful. Although even there, you had a lot of um, usage of the land. Uh, by the Ottoman Empire that was not quite like what it was in ancient times. So I think this is a very interesting area of study that's not often thought about. Yeah, so let's let's think about that in the context of Shechem, Amy. I'm going to pass it over to you. <laughs> 
Um, okay, so the just to situate it a little bit, so Shechem is in the north, uh, as Chris mentioned, it's in what is now West Bank. Uh, I think it's like 60 something kilometers north of Jerusalem. It's a valley. It's always been a fairly fertile valley with nice water sources and, and all of that good stuff. Um, in antiquity, it also had was the intersection of two major roads. And so, of course, it was important there. And then on either side to the north is Mount Ebal. And to the south is Mount Gerizim. And so it really takes, it's really an important site for the Bible beginning with Abraham. Um, It's the first place that he comes to when he comes into the land of Israel. And then, you know, his progeny, it's going to continue to be important. Um, I think probably the most famous uh, story about Shechem out of the Pentateuch is uh, Genesis 34, which is unfortunately the rape of Dina. Um, and the slaughter of the Shechemites um, at the hands of her brothers. And um, that really sort of kicks off um, the negative connotations of this place. Um, And then that gets going to carry through the book of Judges, um, particularly Judges 9 with the story of Avimelech um, and his failed attempt at being the first Israelite king. And just really throughout the entire history of the site, like there's always a connection to some kind of covenant that goes wrong. Um, And it's just has this really horrible history. Um, But when you think about it in terms of that land, and especially as like a fertile agricultural land at the crossroads of places, you can really think about the story differently um, because not only do you kind of see it happening, but you can see that there's a lot at stake in controlling that area. And so it gives us insight into personal motivation. It helps us understand the characters that are there. Um, But if you don't understand the landscape, right, and where kind of history intersects with that, then it's really hard to wrap your mind around why the place is so important. So I, I wrote a piece fairly recently on the city's history Just in Judges 9, um, which is something like 63 verses, the name Shechem appears 21 times. So it's really beating you over the head with the the importance of place, right? Um, And so um, I I interpreted the story through the lens of this quote by um, ethnographer Keith Basso when he says that geographical landscapes are never culturally vacant. I just thought that was really interesting and really applied to a lot of what happens with geography in the Bible, there's a rich history that we may or may not be privy to that the biblical authors bring with them when they write these stories. And so the fact that in one story, they say the name of the place 21 times um, means that they're bringing that sort of cultural baggage with them. But that's something the audience might have understood, right? It's something that we don't necessarily understand as readers. And so in playing, paying attention to geography, we can get a whole other level of understanding about what's actually happening. Um, that's, that's a really good point. And I think that's an important one is that even when we don't have specific mention of geographic features or locations in the text, it is underlying the, the text itself because, you know, you don't always have to reference something explicitly to have it play a role in the, the worldview, the mindset of the, of the audience and of the people. And again, the, the ancient audience would have been immersed in this and would have understood the, the implications of the, the broader geographic setting in the telling of a, of a given story, whereas we today might not just because we're removed culturally, temporally, maybe even spatially. Just, just to add on to both of those things, um, I, would, I would 
point out that it's interesting that besides the Bible, it's not just the Bible. Like the Bible is all about covenant, broken covenant, this place being significant, negative, sort of positive. But it's interesting on both sides of the Bible, whether we're talking about uh, Labayu with in the Amarna correspondence, which is all about <laughs> broken covenant and him trying to uh, create something, or even talking about the modern Samaritans and their experience as this people between peoples uh, who are up on Mount Gerizim. And this is kind of like what I, what I was indicating earlier. It's it's not just an ancient story. It's a it's a modern one and a very very ancient one too. The the land and the dynamics of that landscape have these things that continue on into the story, and it still means something to modern people who worship at Mount Gerizim year after year um, with the Samaritans. And so, where where do you get that? Like, where 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 do you have those like just immensely significant places? that are all within, you know, a view, a view when you're standing up on top of Mount Gerizim in this history that goes back 4,000 years. It's it's really fascinating. Yeah, and for Shechem, it, I mean, it has it had a bad history before we even get to the biblical text. And so it's just been, you know, every single mention that we have of it in the historical record is seeped in treaty, and usually it's treaty that goes wrong. And so by the time the biblical authors get there and they're talking about it, like there's a lot of stuff that they might know that doesn't even make it into the text. And so that becomes the job of, again, the historian and the geographer to uncover that kind of stuff. Um, but it goes back to a point we made earlier. We didn't always have these resources to be able to do this kind of investigation. And so geography is really ripe for a new take, uh, if you will. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And, and I, 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 I love the, the 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 site of Shechem for the reasons that you're describing. It's one of those places that you can come up and you can almost connect the entire story beginning and end and get a preview of the entire event from Abraham all the way to the return and of course the blessings and cursings, uh, which are part of you know the, the the key connection for the story of Israel in Deuteronomy. So it's just such a, a colossal event. Let's change gears, though, and let's have Kyle's choice of... I won't say it's your favorite site, because I know we, we, we don't like to talk about favorites on this site, because they're all our favorites. Um, Kyle has chosen uh, an interesting site to make this this point. Kyle, what, what site would you like to talk about? Horma. No, I'm just kidding. Okay. I keep changing. Uh, I'm, just, I'm, I'm keeping these guys on their toes. No, I'm going to talk about the, the Nahal Basor, which is it only shows up... And one story in, in the Hebrew Bible in 1 Samuel 30 and the story of David pursuing the Amalekites. But it's a feature that plays such a significant role in the landscape that it probably is also the, the Brook of Egypt that we have referred to in uh, external biblical sources. And it's a, a landmark that it, once you see it, you understand the significance of it. And, and it actually allows us to read 1 Samuel 30 in a new light and to, to see that the biblical author is really, in, in my opinion, making a, a grand claim about the nature of David and his leadership. So it's, for those that aren't aware of where it is, it's in the southern part of Israel. And it basically uh, is, it kind of comes out, meets the Mediterranean, basically in the area of Gaza. And it runs almost kind of south east to northwest and then curves towards the the Beersheba basin so it's draining a whole lot of 
the, the Negev Highlands, some of the Beersheba Basin, and then bringing that runoff towards the Mediterranean Sea. And it is a, a, a formidable feature in much of its, its course. And I'm talking sheer cliffs of less soil that are can be upwards of 30 feet high in some places. And that's then separated by the, the floodplain, if you will, of the Basur itself, which is very dense in foliage because obviously it has a lot of water that's running through it, not necessarily all year round, but, but I'd say a good portion of the year. So when we look at this, story in first Samuel 30, it talks about David pursuing the Amalekites and he comes with his men, they get to the Nahal Basur and a couple hundred of them say, I'm good. I'm tired. I'm not going any farther. And then David and the rest of his men cross it, pursue the Amalekites, kill everyone, get all of his women and children and goods back. And David's a hero. Well, it's easy to read this text and say, oh, that's great. David did some stuff. He crossed a stream of some sort and went about his way. But picture now what I've just been trying to describe, 30 foot cliffs in portions of it, broad in some places, it can be 50 meters or so wide, if not larger uh, across with a stream running through it. And did I also mention that in that foliage this is the kind of landscape that lions would have lived in antiquity. So not only do you have to navigate cliffs, a bunch of dense foliage, you might also get eaten by a lion. Oh, and you have to swim possibly too. So add all these things together and all of a sudden it kind of makes sense why a couple hundred guys like, I'm good. I'm, I'm just going to hang out here. I love my wife and kids, but not that much apparently. On the other hand though, when you think about David, you have to understand that the text is saying, here's a guy who's willing to navigate this intense terrain to do what he feels needs to be done or what has been guided or kind of inspired from from God, he goes off and has this amazing victory and he comes back. And so not even this intense topography is going to stop David from doing what is right, shall we say, or going to or, or stop him from being a good leader. And so anyone who hears this story and is aware of this physical feature is going to be impressed with with David from the get go, even before they know anything else about him. And I think this is such an important thing that, that again, when we understand the geography, it allows us to see, oh, there's actually more going on in the text than what we get at the surface reading of it. Yeah, I love that story. Um, you know, you, the, the whole thing at the end of, of Samuel is like, to me, storytelling uh, at the top of the, the shelf for what the Bible's doing with the, the demise of Saul and the, the rise of David, I would just add one point to this, and that is fitting in, I think, with, with what we've been talking about, is when you just read those toponyms on a page, you know, Nahal Basur, or, you know, the, the Jezreel Valley, which is happening in that last section of 27 through 31 at the end of 1 Samuel, anyone who doesn't think of the geography is absolutely missing the point, because what the author is at least intending, in my opinion, is is to show that David's off saving Israel from his in, from their enemies, um, but he's also as far away as possible as any point we can have where two contemporary concurrent events are happening. Uh, he's as far away from Saul as, as imaginable. Like he is as far away from Saul as Dan is from Beersheba almost. Um, and it's it's placing this enormous distance between the king who is about to die in a uh, inglorious way by falling on his own sword, and the the coming king 
uh, is placed, you know, hundred, you know, hundred plus miles away to the south, literally to the border of the land of of, of Canaan, and and that's meant to tell us something about David's claim to the throne not being muddied by any, you know, attempt that he's going to put on the life of Saul, and so that's just another way that we can think of this from a geographical perspective and apply meaning to the beauty of the way that this story is using geography to make a uh, grandiose, you know, it, it's meant to be a bit propagandistic for for David, but it's also trying to show you without <laughs> spelling it out exactly, David's 100 miles away, he couldn't have killed Saul through the geography and the landscape. And that's one of those nuggets that people just don't usually, uh, usually think about. And there's so much too that when you even when you want to look at the geography, most maps in the back of your Bibles, or if you find some other ones in articles, many times they don't even show the topography. So you don't you don't have any sense of what the landscape actually looks like. It's point A, point B. Maybe they draw a stream in there, and you say, "Oh, it's it's flat," or it's it's I you know I don't even know what that is. But when you actually know the the rollingness, the the mountainousness, the ruggedness of the landscape in the different regions and what that looks like. Israel is a really diverse country as far as landscape goes, and each each kind of region has its own character. But you wouldn't gather that from most maps. But it's such an important component to add into your your looking at the geography. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And you know, for my for my choice, I think I'll choose the correct location of Ziklag. Just kidding, just kidding, just kidding. Just kidding. Yes. Yeah, that's <laughs> I know you're gonna support my thing, and you. <laughs> uh, uh, no, no, I, I'll we'll we'll save the discussion of Ziklag, and for those of you who don't know, that's an inside joke between Kyle and I, who have different views on on this one point. Otherwise, we're did we know, we did agreement. a podcast on it though, right? We talked a little bit about some of that. I think we talked so about we, doing a podcast, but I don't think we know if we ever did one. Maybe we did. I'll have to go back through our, through our episodes. I'll, I'll I'll believe you, but I won't do it now. I won't do it now. I will focus on what I what oh, I don't know if I'm gonna say it's my favorite place, but it's one of my favorite places to to teach at. It's one of my favorite places to think about, and that is the um, Jordan River as it comes into the Dead Sea. For me, I think that this uh, particular area is absolutely a, a nexus for biblical story um, and, and backdrop and inspiration, um, not the least of which is um, come across in the second most popular book in the English language, The Pilgrim's Progress, as the mighty Jordan that you cross over when you come into the celestial city. I mean, it's, it's that level of inspiration for, uh, for later literature. But the question is, you know, why does it have, why does it have that impact? And I, I think it's, um, it's one of those things that when you see it and, you, and you, you connect it with each layer, it adds more to each story. And so I'll start with that. Jordan River is a river that is um, hard to classify as a river, <laughs> especially today. It is uh, a creek, uh, small. Now, in ancient times, it would have been much, uh, much wider um, all throughout the year, and in particular at seasons where you would have great snow melt uh, in the uh, late spring, where it could flood its banks and leave, have an inundation plain across uh, the Jordan Valley, which is an important part of you know one of the stories that we'll talk about. But it's never been the Nile. It's never been the Euphrates. It's never been any of these great rivers of, of the ancient world. And and quite frankly, 
it's never been an important river for water until modern times because there's never really been any major settlements that are right beside it. Now, of course, you have um, places like um, Abel Shatim and Jericho and 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 Zarethan and Beit Shan and others along the the Jordan, but they're largely living off of um, you know wadis that are feeding into the Jordan. So it's a it's a unique river in that it's so significant, but it's not significant because of settlements around it as much as it is for events that happen at it. And, and of course, the, the first event, um, and this is what I'm basically going to call, you know, a, a collection of, of three stories. First event is, is Joshua and the crossing over in, at, this, at this location, directly across from Jericho, between the plains of, of Moab and Jericho. After 40 years of wandering, they finally have their marching orders. And the they take the Ark of the Covenant, they the the priests do, and they place it in the, in the Jordan. It stops. We're told it stops at Adam. Uh, it doesn't part like Charlton Heston does in Ten Commandments, but it, the waters are cut off, um, and it makes perfect geographic sense. Even if we can't explain how that would have happened, that they would be cut off at a place like Adam, and even until today, you can see uh, you could almost wade across, uh, so you wouldn't even need a, a miracle of this type. And But they do. The waters are stopped, and they cross over on dry land. And the key, to me, though, is, is started in this, in this first story. Joshua uh, assumes the mantle of, Josh, of, of Moses. He did so previously on a high mountain above, above them at, at Mount Nebo, and he takes on the, the role as the successor leader to uh, to Israel. The Spirit of, of God, the divine presence, is on the throne of the Ark of the Covenant which in the, when, when it's in the waters. And then the next day, Joshua meets uh, an angel or a sar of, of the uh, Yahweh's hosts who will lead them on their next part of the journey. And so, of course, the entire book, of rest, the rest of the book of Joshua continues from there. If we fast forward to the time of Elijah and Elisha, we have two prophets, one older, one younger. They go to various places, Bethel, Gilgal, and so on. This is in 2 Kings chapter chapter 2. And they finally approach the Jordan River, and, and Elijah tells Elisha, listen, Elisha, you know, I'm going to be taken up in a whirlwind. You need to leave me alone. And Elisha says, no, I'm going to stay with you all the way to the end. So they they stop on the same, on the opposite bank now, on the west side of the bank of the Jordan River. And Elijah says, ask me anything you want. And Elisha says, let me have a double portion of your spirit. And Elisha says, Elijah says, you ask a tough thing, but you know, I'll tell you what, here's the deal. If you see me ascend to heaven, uh, taken up in a whirlwind, then it will be so. So what does Elijah do? He takes off his mantle, which is meant to be the, the, the spirit of God upon him. He touches the water just as the Ark of the Covenant did. It uh, stops it. They're able to cross over on dry land, and they're talking. And in the meanwhile, as they're talking, they're split in two as the the chariot and the horseman takes them up. And the, the cool thing I always gain from this is well, a couple cool things is the connection with God's role in society is the chariot, which is the thing that they're not actually supposed to make. So he's the chariot behind their forces, and the chariot isn't with kings like Ahab. It's with these prophets, Elijah and Elisha. So Elisha 
takes up the mantle, which is where we get the term to assume the mantle of 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 the other prophet. He you know crosses over on on, on dry land and continues the story. Now, inter- it's interesting, even in the, in the level of the names, Joshua and Elisha have very very similar meanings um, in in Hebrew, and it's interesting in our in our third story that we have this two other so-called prophets coming to the exact same location, Jesus and John. And it's no coincidence that we have all kinds of these old motifs and stories that are repeated. Um, in when jo- Jesus comes to visit John, John says, you know, the, you know, the Lamb of God, you're the one. I'm not, I can't baptize you. And Matthew's Gospel says, that let it be so now to fulfill all righteousness. And so Jesus is baptized, and what does he see? He sees the Spirit descending like a dove. He sees those same images. So it's not just about, like, you know, later theologians and historians, is this the moment he becomes divine? That's really not the point. It's, it's, It's trying to connect this place with these stories, these successions from one prophet to the next, and it's even to the level of the names are almost the same, the location's virtually the same. And then the aftermath of this, and there's you know many more we could say, much more we could say about it, but you know, the aftermath of this is is really incredible too. You know, Jesus in at least in Matthew and in Mark, he's taken up to a high mountain and shown all the kingdoms of the earth, which is sort of like what Moses does. It, the same mountain or Mount Nebo right beside, and he sees the whole land. Or we have Jesus wandering in the wilderness for 40 days, just as Joshua wandered in the wilderness. Jesus does much more over the course of his ministry than John does. In fact, most of it is associated with signs. And so we can point to what Elisha does in doing exactly in Kings, twice the amount of miracles as Elijah does. And many of the miracles Jesus does is in the same locations. He's you know, raising a, a someone from the dead on the same mountain as Elisha. And so, but the, the key connection to all of these points is, is not just that you have similar people doing similar things, but they're doing it in the same spot. They're, they're connecting to this pretty crappy river <laughs> in a way that is, I, I, I think, uh, really powerful, and and I'll and I'll end with this. I, I know I took up a little bit more time. This is not just in the New Testament, and this is not just in the Hebrew Bible. We have Josephus uh, realizing this and, and, and recording it. I'm going to read uh, just a, a quick verse from Josephus. This is, I, in fact, I can't, I don't have it open, but I think it's from antiquity. Uh, I think it's from uh, the War of the Jews. It says, Now it came to pass, while Phaedus was procurator of Judea, that a certain magician, whose name was Thutis, persuaded a great part of the people to take their effects with them and follow him to the river Jordan. For he was told them he was a prophet, and that he would, by his own command, divide the river and afford them an easy passage over it. And many were deluded by his words. However, Phaedus did not permit them to take any advantage of this wild attempt, but sent a troop of horsemen out against them, who, falling upon them unexpectedly, slew many of them and took them alive. They also took Thutis alive and cut off his head and carried it to Jerusalem. So it didn't end as well, so well for, for Thutis. And this will be the really real last thing I say. And what I find to be fascinating is if we see those three events again, you know, Jesus and John 
uh, Elijah and Elisha and Moses and Joshua, you have the successor, like the, the original prophet dying on in the same location. Moses, you know, Mount Nebo. You have Elijah taken up in the whirlwind, thrown on a mountain, Elisha said. You know, the people, they think he's going to be thrown on a mountain just like, like Moses. And then outside the Bible, John is beheaded at Machaerus, which is, you know, right there. And then you have this, you know, the, the successors that go from there. So it's just a, maybe those, some of those are a coincidence. Others, I think, are very intentional. And to me, I always, uh, when I'm there, really struck by, by these elements that have inspired people for, uh, for centuries. Yeah, that's, I think that's such a nice parallel to see that with uh, those three, three pairs in particular. You know, not only is the, the geography, you know, it largely stays the same, and people keep coming back to it. And I think one of the ways the Bible drives home certain truths or messages is, is in seeing this pattern and making this pattern kind of explicit with, you know, same place, same kind of things keep happening. Maybe there's a connection there. And unless you, again, care to draw the dots between episode one to episode two to episode three and realize the same geographic context within each, you're going to miss out on another level of, of delving into the text. Yeah. And I, I would even say, you know, Kyle, to, to that point, like if we if we look at the, the history of interpretation, the early church fathers that were interested in geography, like a, a, obviously Eusebius and Origen, people think that uh, the Onomasticon, um, uh, that Eusebius basically took what Origen had a century earlier and, and added on to it. And of course, Jerome, they, they sort of lose after Jerome um, the, the impetus to, to keep coming back to these sites and make the, and further on these connections. And so I found it to be the case that when you look at um, the Mishnah and the Talmud and some of the, even the later literature in Judaism where you have ongoing connections to the land, that because of the proximity and the knowledge of where those places are, that they continue to be relevant uh, to how they're interpreting sacred scripture, but also how they're using it to, you know, develop new ideas. And so you can have, you know, even Beit Sha'arim becoming very significant for new uh, successors to, uh, to Judaism, whether we're talking about you would have been Nasi or others that continue to be a, a major part of of their framework about thinking about sacred scripture or let's call it sacred writing and the sacred landscape that they're living in. And I, I think actually what we're what we're seeing even um, even now in even thinking about the the pandemic and the pent up um, the pent up desire to to visit a lot of these places is is much the same impulse. And, and again that. that but I think what the problem is, is when people come only to have an experience to walk where Jesus walked or to experience it at that level, they miss the depth that, that is there. They miss the, these, these layers of knowing uh, the landscape, knowing the archaeological sites, knowing the cross connections that, that can be made and were made. I mean, it, it's, we're making these now, but these connections whether they're explicit, like they are in the New Testament in some instances, or they are implied, they're, they're there, and often, uh, to go back to our title, biblical geography is the missing ingredient to how you make those connections. Amy, any other further thoughts? I mean, are we, number one, are Chris and I, would you agree with what everything we're saying, or would you agree with everything we're saying? 
I would agree with everything you're saying and everything you're saying. Um, So I did have like some additional thoughts based on what Chris was just saying. And that is um, just how, how strong of a thread geography is for the biblical story. Um, And I think what some of these test cases show is, is how much some of these stories were actually part of the culture. Like the gospel writers can't make that story work in the way that you just described unless they understand the Elijah story, unless they understand Joshua's story and keep going and going and going back. And so I think it really just shows that, you know, whether it was, you know, probably oral culture, I mean, because most people didn't know how to read or write, but people know the story and they also know the land. And they don't necessarily have to know that one spot that they live on. Like people have an understanding of the land even beyond where they're living. And so I just think it really underscores a couple things that we maybe don't have so much in our culture. And that is knowledge of our land, um, at least at this intense, deep level. Um, And also not really knowledge of our stories very well. Um, But I think again and again, when you study geography, you can't help but to study all of these stories that come to bear, right? So even if you just go to like whatever Bible search engine you like and you put in a place name and you see all the places that that name shows up, um, you can see all of the stories that it touches. And it always kind of comes comes for me back to that cultural element as well. Um, it's not, it's never just land, right? It's us looking at land and there's an important intersection that happens there. Yeah, I, I, and I actually absolutely love this aspect. You know, I feel like so much of the time in biblical studies, we're focused on, okay, when was it written, how historical mm-hmm. it is, and all that. But and, and and I'm not trying to, or what sources it's connected with, and things like that. But I'm most interested in 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 the reception history of the Bible when it was actually written and received, and for the most part, the people, as you said, didn't have the ability even if they could read, to, you know, have a scroll that they were going to learn about Moses and Joshua at the Jordan River. So what it means, though, is when they're when they're visiting, um, like, for instance, uh, um, we could think of the story of Ruth going back and forth, but obviously that happened at, through many times. Mm-hmm. When you're crossing over the Jordan River and you come to the fords, what's in your mind? It Well, it's the story of Moses and Joshua. It's the story of Elijah and Elisha. And we didn't add even David. You know, David was met at the fords by these people that wanted to make sure that they really believed he was the king. So it, it, it's all these events. And to them then, that memory, which is tied so closely to place, is the Bible. It is the sacred history of, of what they thought their ancestors and their God and their land, that, you know, Holy Trinity, as uh, former president J.U.C., uh, of J.U.C., uh, Paul Wright used to call it, um, that, that, that's, that's, their, that's their connection to this, is the memory brought on by the geography. And, and that's where I think it's so exciting to, to, to think about, because essentially any place you go in the land of, of, of Canaan, Israel, uh, Palestine, whatever you want to call it, it has these levels of, of, of detail. And I think it's the kind of thing that, as we, if we circle all the way back to our, our first point, that's why it's so foundational. Like, if, if we all agree that there's this oral element, and we can know what the geography was because it's still there, and to see these connections. 
Yeah. Any final thoughts, guys, on uh, on this uh, missing ingredient? I think we we covered our our bases um, pretty well, and we've got some nice insights for people to to chew on. You know, to continue the metaphor of the ingredient. Um, any final, I think the only any thing final I thoughts? Would, yeah, I think the only thing I would add is for those out there that are listening who either don't have recourse at, at the moment to a good map or ability to go to the land and experience it themselves, find a good map, find one that has the topography, that has the sites listed and use it as you're reading the text. Don't gloss over the geographical terms. Don't gloss over the place names. Use it and see where they're physically situated and how they relate to the land around them. I'm going to give a little plug. Biblical Backgrounds creates these maps that do do that. And I, I mean, there's no other maps that I know of that are will allow you to interact with the landscape in the way that they provide. And so you can you know, do a Google search if you want or look it up. It's just biblical backgrounds. Um, but they, those are some fantastic maps for delving into um, the story. And they've got you know, many other resources that can help you do that. But that would be my, my plug is get a good map, use it as you're reading the text so that these extra layers can, can become visible to you. And I would piggyback on that and say, even just with the biblical text, just, you know, open your favorite search, you know, Bible search, whether it's whatever app you use or biblegateway.com. Um, and you can just put in a place name and it will show you all the places that it shows up. And if you kind of play around with that, you can see just how infused that place is in the story. And even just like that level of um, exercise might open up your your eyes to something you've never seen before. And I'd add uh, two things. One, uh, to circle back to what we talked about earlier, the Lexham Geographic Commentary mm-hmm. Series is a, is a great resource. And my personal all-time favorite resource for Bible studies in general, but geography especially, is Accordance Bible Software and Sacred Bridge. Having those um, in, a, in a Bible software is absolutely uh, significant. And as we conclude, um, and I just kind of wanted to reflect, give one last final reflection, and that is all of the great stories of our era that are in, in film, whether it be the world of Middle Earth or uh, the world of Westeros, they're trying to create a world that is real, that has um, motifs that you keep coming back to these great rooms, um, whether it's the Gondor or Dragonstone or wherever it is, these moments that have layers of, of, of meaning to them. Um, that's a modern expression. We talked about Jerome talking about Greek mythology uh, and Troy and, and the element of being at those places means something more to you once you've read the story and connected with it. The stories that I mentioned earlier, the, the the fantasy ones, those are those are made up, and they're trying to do it in a way, using real world to to create these worlds. The Bible, the biblical world is real, right? It's it's a real world where real people lived in it and received these stories. And so I just say, the further you go into it, you're doing the same things that make these other wonderful stories you're already enjoying work. Uh, it's this it's this setting that that is uh, really incredible, and that's what again inspires us on this on this uh, podcast, Biblical World. So thank you for joining us. It's been a a fun uh, episode to look at a few different examples of why biblical geography is important. So uh, until then, in the words of Kyle, keep on digging. 
You've been listening to On Script's Biblical World podcast. If you enjoy this show, please show your support by giving us a rating on iTunes or wherever you listen. You can support the show by visiting onscript.study/donate. Until next time, keep digging.